Our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter. The road is life. Jack Kerouac on the road. We all carry suitcases filled with the flotsam and jetsam of our experiences. These satchels are that which is us. And we open them and share them in order to connect. Every road is an adventure. Every path a journey. Most are mundane and normal. Some are quite peculiar. I'm Don Hall, and these are my peculiar journeys. If there's a consistent lesson being drummed into my head in my 50s, it is this. In the grand scheme of things, I'm no big deal. Contrary to the stream of self-affirmation spewing forth upon the social media platforms that tout individual strength and personal worth, none of us is terribly essential to the ongoing deluge of humanity spawning every second. The idea that one day we will all wake up and realize that we are not the center of the universe is a strong one. Avoiding full existential crisis and nihilism that this recognition seems to indicate, let's look at it with a bit of dispassion and a sense of rationality. We say Black Lives Matter as a hopeful whistling in the dark rather than any sort of expression of reality. Reality is that, except in the tiniest of segments and the slimmest of margins, no lives really matter. We throw up social media posts and pictures stating our own determination to be unique and special among 7 billion people, and man, the odds are just not in our favor. While we wake up every morning somehow convincing ourselves that each of us is the protagonist of the biopic about us, almost no one on the planet gives a fuck about you or your feelings and opinions and daily aches and pains unless you happen to cross paths with someone's pet cause or single voting issue, your opinion of the state of things means next to nothing. Status is fleeting, power is interchangeable, and on a planet with so many people, the fact that your funeral will likely be attended by less than 50 people and only six really knew you indicates that your sense of self-worth cannot be determined by a belief in your own importance. As the number of people increase on earth, the more recyclable we each become. It's simple math. Disposable bags, lighters, toys, clothing. It's only a natural evolution that we each become disposable in our own way. We have family, but unless we have the sort of family who lives and breathes together, regular meals and work and that sort of tribal existence, family becomes secondary to individual existence. Perhaps more than disposable, but less than forever, family is the basis of our belief that we are each somehow essential. Friendships, communities, populations... The larger the grouping, the less important each of us becomes until we are merely cogs in social machines easily replaced when inconvenience rears its head. You will not be invited to that celebration despite your years of service. You will not be credited for your work once the corporation decides you are to be escorted out of the building. You will not be the next Gandhi or King or Parks or Goldman. You will be forgotten almost immediately once you are gone. 
I grew up as a transient for most of my earliest days. My tiny family tended to move from place to place rather frequently. One result to my psyche this existence fomented was, out of necessity, a rapid distancing of myself from rooted relationships with both regions and people. Thus, my definition of friend tends to be more specific and uncompromising, which is not really a great way to see relationships, but is nonetheless my burden. Everyone has their specific burden, however, and I can pretty much guarantee that few give a rat's ass about mine, right? The thing is, George Bailey wasn't the story. Sure, he's played by venerable star of the day Jimmy Stewart, and the focus of the tale is from his perspective, but it never was about him. The wonderful life he saw was about the people he affected for the better, not himself. A deeper look at the story tells us that all of those moments Clarence showed George as reasons to live were about other people succeeding due to his sacrifice of his own forward momentum. Without his sacrifice of his hearing in one ear, his brother wouldn't become a hero. Without his decision to take over the savings and loan, the poorest people in town would not have homes. The message of the classic film is not that we should fight to stay alive so we can be alive but that we should fight so that we can sacrifice our own lives for the betterment of others. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, said Spock in another fictional parable. It's a difficult challenge to make those ensconced in the society of narcissism that we are currently navigating. Today we want credit, approval, validation more than almost anything else. In the fight for the supremacy of autonomy, compensation, or recognition, it seems that recognition is tantamount. On some level, we must recognize how disposable we all are, but fight desperately against fading into the ocean of similar water droplets that comprises the many. Yet there is a freedom in admitting to disposability. Once you see it clearly, how essentially small you are, it opens up the possibility of being effective in the small moments, the tasks that no one will ever see, but make all the difference in individual lives. George Bailey wasn't special. He was, on most faces of it, a real loser. That's why he decided to end it all. He was a failure from the lens of postmodern success. Clarence didn't change his mind. He shifted his perspective away from himself to those who surrounded him. So what to do as a wholly disposable piece of a puzzle that will place you in the blink of an eye? Well, some become enraged and decide to inflict harm upon realizing how unimportant they are. They get guns, they shoot strangers because they aren't the center and worthy of permanence. Well, then no one else gets to feel that way either. Some dedicate their lives to selfless pursuit in order to get the altruistic signaling that comes with martyrdom. Most delude themselves into a comfortable blanket that shields them from the knowledge while others find the freedom to be unacknowledged, unappreciated, and unrewarded for the tiny successes, no obstacle for doing those things anyway. I'd like to be that last guy. Maybe your vote doesn't count. Vote anyway. Your heart will be broken. Love anyway. No one will appreciate your years of service. Serve Anyway, dive in and save your brother in the ice or take the crap job instead of following your dream, whatever. As a non-fictional David Foster Wallace once said, this is water.
and welcome to episode 77 of Peculiar Journeys. Um, we're in the midst of a lot of stuff going on. The world seems like it's ending, and I have a feeling that every generation at some point has felt like the world was ending. And so we, I'm absolutely optimistic that we will get through this. Um, hopefully we learn some things. Hopefully the scars that we engender are scars worthy of uh, wisdom, of learning from. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we're going to be, I think we're going to be just fine. We're just going to have to go through a really dark, dark place. And that's, that's all right. Right now, personally, we have opened the casino um, and it wasn't, well, you know, I, I, I said the whole time, oh, it's either going to be overrun or completely empty. It was neither of those things. We opened the Wild Wild West opened at 12.01 a.m. on Thursday, June 4th. And we had about 30 people, many of them regulars, people that we see every day during the year that were just happy to be there to have a cocktail, to play some of their favorite machines. You know, it was it and it was actually quite nice. It was it was fun. Leading up to it was chaos because while we had two and a half months to clean things, um, once we actually got to the place where it's like, oh, that's right. Here's the nuts and bolts of actually running a casino. Here are our Title 31 jackpot machines and, and passwords. And here's our sports book passwords. And oh my God, can I log in to this computer over here by the bar? And all of these things, can we print cards? All this stuff was sort of like, oh shit, we got to do this. Because if we don't have those pieces of the puzzle, none of it works. And so I would say about four hours into it, I got there about eight o'clock at night and uh, we were just scrambling to make sure everything worked. Um, I then had my day off. And during my day off, we have a, a system of, uh, to get the keys to things, certain pieces of the casino. <laughs> Excuse me. We have a thing called Key Watcher, which is basically an electronic box that several people have to sign into for you to be able to sign keys out. It's a way to keep track of the keys and make sure that the, you know someone doesn't have a key to the soft count room and then can just go in there and you know, pilfer thousands of dollars. I mean, there's a lot of those things. Well, apparently our key watcher on my day off caught on fire. And so, you know, it's just like a, out of not use, a lot of that kind of stuff happened. It was a little nuts. It was a little crazy. Um, other things that have happened uh, since I last talked to you is like one of the things I think is very interesting, and this actually brings up a story, short little story, um, is that Andrew Alexander, in the face of the Black Matter, Black Lives Matter protests um, about George Floyd's murder um, by police. Um, Andrew Alexander, the executive director, the CEO of Second City International, um, and the only reason I have that connection is Second City in Chicago, um, has resigned as the CEO. And he has resigned as the CEO, and his letter, I'm not going to read it, but his his letter, basically, his resignation letter was basically... Yeah, we really fucked up. We have not been inclusive. We have not taken care of people of color. We are, uh, we have not treated black lives like they mattered. And so I'm stepping down. I've not created this, uh, I've, you know, it, it just basically this wholesale cloth admission to really not in, in the years of Second City really caring about uh, people of color. And as, as, as black voices have become more and more heard, um, especially at this sort of tipping point, it, it just became, uh, he, you know, he got, he got trolled quite a bit on Twitter, primarily because, as I understand it, um, 
Second City and specifically Andrew Alexander did the thing so many corporations are doing, which is they did that virtue signaling. Second City believes that black lives matter. And we need in these times, you know, they put out that corporate statement um, of support. And he was trolled by many uh, black and black and queer actors that had been a part of Second City and had engaged with him and found that that's just hypocrisy. It was just bullshit. It was just virtue signaling on a corporate level, which is weird because corporations aren't people, so they don't really have virtue. They're just looking to make money. And so he went down. Now, my quick story about Andrew Alexander is May, way back in 2003. And if you've listened to this uh, podcast at all, you know the story about uh, the city of Chicago shutting down the theater that I was running, uh, among others. And then the next day being accused of forging a license. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know that ultimately I didn't. And I was, you know, I don't know if I would say I was exonerated, but it was just, it, it was made clear that no, I hadn't done that. However, I recall at the time, um, it hit the Sun Times, lots of news, lots of noise about this. And Andrew and I had met twice before. Um, and one of the times that we had met was after I'd left Second City and we started WNP and our early company name, our early ensemble name was named Level Six. And we called ourselves Level Six as a reference to the fact that we had all met in the Second City class system and the final level of Second City's classes are Level Five. Well, he wanted us to not call us. He wanted us not to call ourselves Level Six. He felt like that was some sort of association with Second City and that it was using Second City as a way to kind of boost us, this kind of thing. And I basically, you know, I, you know, I was, I don't think I, I, as I recall, I wasn't rude, but I was probably smug. Knowing me, I was probably smug and in a really nice and probably non-vulgar way told him to go fuck himself. Well, when that broke... Uh, that, uh, you know, the, the forging of the license and all this nonsense, I got a personal letter from Andrew Alexander. In it was the Sun-Times article clipped out and a simple note that he wrote, I see how you did it. Nice try, Andrew Alexander. And uh, that I kept that for a long time because it really pissed me off. I mean, it was really like, oh, yeah, it really got me. And so in my own pettiness, what I can say at this point to Andrew Alexander, and I am a thousand percent certain he's not listening to this podcast, but had I had the opportunity and I saw him, um, I would pull up his letter of, boy, I really fucked up and I have not been, uh, you know, I have been a, a tool of white supremacy. I kind of want to, I kind of want to say, hey, Andrew, I see how you did that. Nice try. In the fallout of continued protests about a white police officer kneeling on the neck of an innocent black man for eight minutes and 46 seconds and the ensuing massive and, and justifiable outrage and then the concomitant riots and the, you know, the bad actors coming in trying to foment violence and looting and now that it's, it's slowly becoming just peaceful protest, but unending and, and focused in that. Um, I'm going to tell the next story because it made me, the, the whole situation has made me think about this. And so uh, let me tell you the story and then I'll, 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 I'll give you what I think might be the takeaway. I was, uh, as the manager of the Wild Wild West, we have a lot of uh, people that show up. Um, you know, in, in various states, you know, we'll have homeless people come in and literally are just looking to get to, to just to grift on the on the 
the casino floor. Sometimes there's just people that have no money, but it's so goddamn hot in Las Vegas. They just want to go in someplace public where there's air conditioning. Um, I've had struggles with people that just come in, claim that they're playing so that they can get some water. And my perspective is you don't have to lie to me. Just come in and ask me for water and I'll probably give you water. You know, I mean, it's hot outside. I get that. But you don't have to pretend like you are a customer. You just have to come in and say, hey, man, I'm, it's hot as ass and I can't get any water and I haven't had water. Water's kind of essential, so I don't mind. I, I really don't have a problem like giving you water. But you don't have to lie to me to do it. Well, we also get drunk belligerents and people with some real uh, problems. Let's put it that way. One day... And, and what we have is we have a whole system where the, the, the security officers and security managers are on site. It's a private uh, residence or a private uh, business. And so our security has to take care of that first. If things get out of control and our security is unable to contain that situation or deal with that individual, that's when they call um, the Las Vegas Metro Police. And my experiences with the Las Vegas Metro Police have, have, have really been nothing but very positive, especially from the perspective of the casino. So one day um, we had a guy, and I actually wasn't in the casino at the time, but apparently what happened is we had a gentleman. He was white. He was uh, kind of heavy set, pretty big guy, pretty, pretty big guy, um, just drunk as he could be. He came in and he had a voucher for, I think it was like $20, $25 a voucher that he had won at Gold Coast Casino. And he wanted to cash that voucher at our cage. Well, we're not gonna cash it, it's not even the same company. I mean, if it had been from any of the stations, casinos or wildfire properties, we would have cashed it. But Gold Coast is not a, a station, it's not a part of our corporation. So of course we're not gonna cash that. Um, well, he gets belligerent. He gets really angry. He starts screaming in the middle of the casino. He starts throwing, pitching a fit. So our head of security, Antoine, who's a very large black man, walks over and basically says, all right, you gotta go. I mean, the guy's really pitching a fit and he's disturbing the peace and he's drunk anyway. It's like, you gotta leave. Well, this guy does not. And he thinks that he's, and quite frankly he was, big enough to actually physically challenge Antoine. So Steve, our security supervisor, comes over and they basically kind of, without, and I, from what I understand, they never manhandled him. They just kind of walked him out the door. They just kind of just kept approaching him until the guy kind of went outside. Now, once outside, um, they, uh, they, you know, they, they were like, you have to leave the property. And this guy was not under any circumstances planning on leaving the property. And the fact that he was drunk and maybe a little mentally deranged had a lot to do with this. So all of a sudden, um, this guy spits in Steve's face. And so now Steve's blood is up and they've decided that they're going, this guy's not going to leave. He is fixed. He's physically assaulted one of our officers. Okay. They are going to detain him and call the police. So Steve and Antoine, two pretty burly guys start the process of trying to subdue and handcuff this guy. And this guy is not going down easy. And you can see both, I mean, both of my officers are really, and so that's when, about the about that time, that's when I show up on the scene. And I know as a manager, I'm not gonna get into that. That's, I, that, that's their job, and my job is to provide some sort of, I think, guidance in some ways, and some witness in some ways. And so I, I stand there and I watch, and I ask Steve what's going on, and he explains it. And they're, in the meantime, they're trying to, like, cuff him. And this guy is just losing it. 
Well, because he didn't want to be cuffed, which who the fuck does? Um, they get him down on the asphalt, and at no point, uh, I will just say, at no point did any did they put their knee in his back or their knee on his head or anything like that. I think the worst thing Antoine did, did at one point was he just he blocked this guy's face because he didn't want to get spit on because the guy starts screaming as he's spitting that he has HIV. So now we've got, I mean, now it's just going nuts. One of the things that I thought was interesting as I, in, in, in context of, of where we're at now societally is that I heard both Antoine and Steve say at least a dozen times while they were subduing him was the question, are you all right? And we're not here to hurt you. The, the whole time they were very while they were really like and you could see the the adrenaline because they're really fighting this guy to get him down they were very and, and they said it in really calm voices it was really I, I was kind of amazed because I can say I couldn't have done that as soon as the guy spit at me I think I'd probably want to just jack him I mean that was just out of the control are you all right and we're not here to hurt you so they finally get him subdued they get him into the security office, which then he proceeds. They sit him down on a bench. There's a metal bench in there. They cuff him to the bench. He starts smashing his head against the wall. As, I mean, really hard. Like he's losing his shit, but he's smashing his head, you know, into his mouth. And what it seems like his intent was, was to make his mouth bleed. So now he can spit blood on anybody that approaches him. Well, everybody's out of the office. We're leaving him alone. You know, he starts, and and again, he starts to. At a certain point, when he realizes that he's not, he's cuffed, and 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 the cops are coming, he starts to cry. He starts to claim that he's having a heart attack. Um, and the minute it's like he's got head trauma kind of thing, I see officers, uh, other officers, immediately get an ice pack and ask him if he has any medical issues that if they need to give him some uh, some ibuprofen or something. I mean, they're doing their very best with a very volatile situation. Well, then all of a sudden, three squad cars, and it seems to be the way it always is, three squad cars from the Metro Police show up. And they come in and their job is to, and, and one of them is an EMS truck, and they their job is to subdue him, find out what's wrong with him, and take him in. And again, this guy is screaming, he's crying, he's he's feel, he's claiming that he's dying right there on the spot. And I watched these Metro, and I'm watching the whole time, just kind of making sure nothing goes goes south. They are they treat him with aggressive, but kid gloves. They really take care of him, um, despite his complete nuts, like just complete out of control. A lot of things that he said made no sense at all, because he was, like I said, completely hammered. Eventually, they calm him down. He doesn't want to go to the go to jail, but they're going to take him to jail. They were actually take I think they were actually taken to the hospital first, and so they left the property. And then, of course, Stephen Antoine, who had been spit on by someone who claimed HIV, had to go to the hospital themselves to be tested and do paperwork. Now, that was just one of those instances, and and I my job then was to notate everything that I saw exactly the way I saw it. So I sat down and I typed out a report that said exactly what I saw and how I saw it. I had the badge numbers of all the officers because they gave them to me because they knew that was my job. And that was the situation. That was an experience that I had. Now the question, and I think this is what's really interesting about that, is to hear this story, depending on what you bring to the story will determine 
how you view that story. It would be very easy to say, see, the police take care of white people. You know, that, that when there's a white man who's losing his shit, who's spitting, who's freaking out, they take care of him. That is one lens that you could look at it. That is not the lens that I saw. Um, and one of the interesting things that I will point out is, because I didn't share with this information, is that Antoine is black. I think I said that. But of the, I think there were eight police officers on the scene. Um, four of them were black. Two of them were Latino. Four, three, three of them were women. You know, so there was... There wasn't like a whole bunch of white cops, you know, and, and so there's that. What else do you take away from that? Um, was there a better way to de-escalate that situation? I don't think so. From my, my observation, this guy wasn't going to leave. And so either, I mean, Antoine and they, they could have just said, all right, wreak mayhem, run around, scream at people, throw stuff, throw a fit. I mean, and that's not going to be appropriate. Their job is to keep, keep peace in some way. Um, so I'm not sure, my takeaway from that was that, that yes, brutal police tactics, when you give people that much control, it's a bad thing, you know? And it, it's like I said, who to thunk if you give people ultimate authority, militarized weaponry, and no fear of prosecution, what do you think? Some, some of them might become tiny despots and assholes. Some of their worst biases might come out in, in, in brutal activity. Absolutely. But I can tell you this, and this isn't a Blue Lives Matter bullshit thing. I can tell you this. I would never, you couldn't pay me enough money to be a police officer in this country. Um, it, I, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think it's an interesting dilemma that we have to face. And I also think, you know, we talk a lot about we have to have the conversation. If we can't say the things on our mind that may be wrong, we can't have that conversation. If the conversation is one-sided where I'm going to tell you what to think and I'm going to tell you what you can and cannot say, that's not a conversation. That's a lecture. That's something completely different. I do believe in these times we have to really have the conversation. And in order to have the conversation, we have to be able to see lots of different aspects of the same situation and see where we're not working, see where things can work and figure this out. And that is Peculiar Journeys for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you subscribe. I hope you go to Apple Podcasts and give me a review. If you disagree with anything I've said or you agree or you had a similar experience, let me know. And uh, Viva Las Vegas. Let's see if we, uh, let's see if we uh, can weather this potential second wave of pandemic. This has been another episode of the Peculiar Journeys podcast. For archived episodes, go to donhall.vegas slash podcast to hear stories of Chicago, of Millennium Park, and of the big move to Las Vegas. If you dig the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and review the show. If you really dig the podcast, why not go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and help fund the endeavor. Whatever you decide to do, thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for more of my peculiar journeys. Thank you.